Hey, and let's thank all our children's ministry workers, shall we? Especially this weekend, they have really given it. If you happen to come on Friday or Saturday, you know why. The kids were awesome. They knocked it out of the park. And uh, what a way to, to worship Jesus together through the mouth of, mouths of, of kids. And yeah, if you see Shara Aldham or Jess Weening or Shauna Lee Carter, uh, boy, just give them a great big thank you. Shauna Lee was left without a voice last night. Oh, it's a good thing. We've got some awesome, awesome people. And Coldwater, it's great to see you this morning. Good to have you with us as well. You know this because you've seen your calendar. Two weeks from tomorrow is Christmas. I know, did you feel joy or panic? <laughs> Christmas has a way of sparking joy in our hearts, doesn't it? We get together, we delight in each other, we fuel our friendships with tasty treats, way too many tasty treats, and our kids tug like new puppies, eager to be unleashed onto their presence. But it's not like that for everybody. It's not like the, all, the, all the time for any of us, really. Christmas can dredge up loneliness, can't it? Distress, even despair. What is it that can bring a cloud over your Christmas? What is it that sits on your chest like a, a lead weight these days? Is it family? Is it somebody that you know you're going to miss? You've been missing them. Or is it somebody who's really no joy to be around? Is it your finances? Fear about tomorrow? Is it your health? Is it a memory that you wish you could undo forever? Or the world news that you wish you could just shut out? How do you capture a sense of joy when life, when the world goes bleak? like it sometimes does for us. Well, God's timeless word to us this morning takes us back 27 centuries to a time that was particularly bleak, to a time where distress and anguish choked the air. This was because the king in charge was weak and wicked. He was a wayward king. For, for 140 years prior to him, the nation of Judah had flown beautifully with a succession of four good and godly kings. These kings were truly at the controls, but when King Ahaz, Ahaz stepped into the cock, cockpit, he pushed his nation into a steep 16-year nosedive. He promoted idolatry on every street corner. He left his nation vulnerable to military disaster that left no family untouched. Instead of running to God for help, Ahaz scrambled instead to stave off the threats by ransacking God's temple treasures and buying protection from a bigger bully up north, godless Assyria. He was so intimidated by Assyria that in the end, he closed the temple doors, and worship of the living God was shut right down. 
When the king goes astray, everyone suffers. Only, good, only two good kings would come after Ahaz, giving Judah a little bit of lift, but the general trajectory from Ahaz on was just down and down and further down. God's prophet Isaiah foresaw this trajectory. He saw this turbulence coming, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prophesied about a king to come a king unlike Ahaz, an incomparable king, a king who would take his people up and up and up. So let's turn our attention to that prophecy, to God's promise of the king to come. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9, you'll find it on page 573 of the church Bibles in front of you. Our focus this morning will be on verses 6 and 7, very familiar verses to you. I hope they're not too, too familiar. They might ring for you like a Christmas jingle that, you know, comes and then fades with the season. But my prayer for all of us this morning is that we will gaze. And that as we gaze on this promise, the light of the distressing time, in the light of the distressing times that it was addressed to, that it will grip our hearts and hold on to us for any dark or distressing moment that might be ahead of us, or that might be now. So let's turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7, but in order to do that, we're going to have to get a, a running start. Look back at chapter 8 and verse 19. We're going to start there. God's Word begins, verse 19, chapter 8. And when they, they who, they who rebuff the Lord and His Word like King Ahaz had a habit of doing, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire uh, of the dead on behalf of the living? The obvious answer is no. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, God's word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, and when they, are hungry they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9 pivots, verse 1. But... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It'll help you to know that Zebulun and Naphtali were outlying tribes way up on the northern fringe of Israel. 
That made them vulnerable to oppressive invaders, much like a schoolchild is more exposed to bullies on the far fence of the playground. That was the kind of contempt they endured in the former time. Did you see that in verse 1? But in the latter time, God says, God would make things glorious for this region. This land would go from gloom to glory. This land beyond the Jordan. Did you see that? Because here, seven centuries later, in this very region of Galilee, Jesus would begin his formal ministry. And so the gospel writer Matthew in chapter 4 quotes these very verses from Isaiah as he points to Jesus saying, the people who walked in darkness have seen a gray light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's an incredibly joy-filled picture, isn't it? How could such light, such joy, such freedom, such victory break out of such deep, dark oppression? Well, the answer is... For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Would you recite those four names together out loud? Go, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's promise came at just the perfect time to penetrate gloom, to penetrate the distress with the hope of an incomparable king to come. So we ask, who is this king? Who is this king? Verse 6 begins to sketch an answer. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God planned to dispel the distress and to break the burden of oppression with a child. A child. Why a child? Well, look back at verse 4. Do you see how God promised there to break the rod of the oppressor as on the day of Midian? What does he want us to remember? What does he mean by that? Well, he's pointing us back to the story of Gideon, one of our favorite childhood stories. If you grew up in Sunday school, remember Gideon? 
In the days of the judges, when God's people were overrun by a horde of Midianites, back, Judges uh, describes them as thick as locusts. Remember how God whittled Gideon's army down from a not-so-impressive 30,000 strong, well, compared to the 135,000 that they were going to have to tussle with, it wasn't much of a band, but God whittled them down to a band of 300. In fact, he said, no, you can't take your swords and spears. Why would God do that? Well, Judges chapter 7 and verse 2 gives us God's answer. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many, Gideon, for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see, way back then, even in Gideon's day, God specializes in rescue through the weak insignificance of smaller agents. Just as in the day of Gideon when God broke the oppression of Midian with using a small unarmed bunch, God wanted the coming of this child, another seemingly insignificant agent. He wanted this to demonstrate that this can only be the work of God. A child born, a son given. That's who the king to come would be. And as Isaiah sketched out this promise, he had no clue how precise this language from God really was. Looking back on Isaiah's time through the lens of the complete revelation that we have in God's word, we can see that these hints give just the essence the essence of an astonishing picture. This child born, deliberate words. This son given, deliberate words, is none other than Jesus, the eternal Son of God who had no beginning, who always was with God, who always was God, and could therefore only be given. By God the Father. He could only ever be sent into time and space to become the child born. A baby with a beginning. What a mystery. What a profound mystery. Who is this king? He's the incomparable God-man. First and foremost, God incarnate. Think of it. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. And we worship. And we worship. One preacher ponders it like this. As an infant, God learned to crawl, to stand, to walk. As a boy, God probably felt the pain of getting picked on and had to learn his ABCs. As a youth, he probably had pimples, probably had body odor and bad breath. He went through puberty. 
As a carpenter, he probably hit his thumb with a hammer and faced complaining clients even though his work was always flawless. Why? Why would, why would this king come like that? Yes, to prove that this can only be the work of God. But also, as Hebrews tells us, he had to be made like us. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the, propitiation for the sins of the people. If Jesus at one point in time felt how his thumb throbbed under the blow of a hammer, how can he not feel the ache of your heart? He knows. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet was without sin. What an incomparable king. Jesus, the God-man. God came near. God entered your gloom. He knows. He understands. He can help like no other can. But he's so much more, isn't he? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 keeps going. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, his fame, his renown will be called Wonderful Counselor, you helped me rehearse those. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These four double descriptors trumpet the sum of the God-man's character. They herald the perfection of His person. These are His excellencies. These qualifications make Jesus a standout King. Let's look at them. He's a wonderful counselor. When that word wonderful is used in the Old Testament, it almost always points to somebody beyond human, to someone supernatural. This future king's teaching and guidance and counsel, Isaiah says pointing forward, won't draw on earthly wisdom. It will be of God. And so when Jesus started to teach, as Matthew depicts it in Matthew chapter 4, and we hear his words begin to ring across Galilee. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was pointing to himself, Jesus was, as that king. When he spoke, his hearers were astonished because in contrast to the limp and lifeless lessons that they were used to hearing, Jesus taught with authority. He could speak to Nicodemus about how to enter the kingdom of God because he came from there and could speak firsthand of heavenly things. His counsel is wonderful. I frequently feel my shortcomings as a pastor. I need that photo directory. <laughs> my counsel is never flawless. And yet Jesus could counsel flawlessly. He never had to retract a word. He could decipher the thoughts of his enemies and unveil their hearts with a simple question. He used parables 
simple stories with a point, to unlock the truth for those with childlike faith, but also to lock it away and to put it out of the reach of the proud. King Ahaz's counsel led his people to ruin, but Jesus, listen, listen to his counsel. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. It's because of God, 1 Corinthians 1 says, it's because of God that we are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God. How does he describe that wisdom? Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Look at that wisdom. What higher counsel could ever make us right with God? What higher counsel could ever empower us to grow in godliness? What higher counsel could ever reach down to rescue us from sin and from Satan and from death? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Jesus is that wisdom. Do you see what a standout king he is? What a wonderful, wonderful counselor. So let me ask you, do you tune in? Do you lock in on his voice? Are you following him into life? He's not just the God-man, the wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. For Isaiah, what would truly qualify this king to come is that he'd be more than a mere man. Jesus was fully man, all right. Do you remember how he got so physically drained that he slept hard? He crashed in the, in the hull of a storm-tossed boat. Remember that? His, his disciples had to shake him awake. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to go down and drown? But as 100% mighty God, Jesus calmly stood to his feet and stilled the raging sea the way he had launched the universe into existence with a word. Who else could open a blind man's eyes and then say, I am the light of the world. You follow me and you won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Who else could feed 5,000 from a lunch bag and then say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Eat of me and you will never grow hungry again. Who on earth could raise a friend from four days dead and then say, I am the resurrection and the life. Who else could truthfully say before Abraham was, I am. Who else has sovereignty over angels and over demons, over every earthly power such that one day every knee in heaven, on earth, under the earth will bow to him, only mighty God, what a king! What 
a king. So let me ask you, does he have your allegiance? Are you fully surrendered to him? This God-man, wonderful counselor, mighty God is more. He's also the everlasting father. Everlasting father. Now, don't get confused here. When Isaiah uses the term father here to describe Jesus, he's not using a Trinitarian, he's not using it in a Trinitarian sense as a way of describing the relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Godhead. Isaiah is not saying that the Son is also the Father. He's not saying that Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father are the same. They're one, but they're not the same. That's a heresy called modalism that was denounced by the early church councils. The term Father the way Isaiah uses it here, is just a description. It's a picture. It's an analogy pointing to how Jesus rules His people, how He governs us in a father-like way. King Ahaz could have cared less for the good of his people, and like the worst, most abusive father, he ruled them to their ruin. But Jesus, Jesus rules as a good king should, with care, with compassion, with tenderness and affection. He welcomed little children. Can you picture this? Welcomed them to jump into his arms. He protects. He provides. You and I are only used to earthly rulers who have term limits and lifespans. All our rulers have a shelf life, don't they? They rise to power, they rule for good or ill, and then they lose an election or they die. And then the next ruler takes over and undoes or redoes what the first one did, and we call that progress. What better care, though, could we ever receive What more certain security than to be protected and provided for by a king who was never elected by us, who has no term limits, who lives to care for us with no end of days? Because his is an indestructible life. His father-like care for us will continue in perpetuity. What a standout king he is. So let me ask you, do you rest in his care? Can you relax in his compassion? But he's so much more. He's also the prince of peace. Not just the the God-man, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Oh, how we need a leader qualified to finally and fully bring this about, don't we? All you have to do is read the news. How, How we need for hostilities to cease in our raging world. How we need for our families to forgive and bury every last resentment. I just bury every last record of wrongs. How we need relief in our anxious minds. Calm in our 
fear-fueled emotions and gladness in our souls, but Jesus is all that. He himself is our peace, says Ephesians 2, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There the verse is talking about Jew and Gentile. But he takes every ruptured relationship and can break them down. He he can take every rage between nations or any estrangement in families and break it down. But he's more. We have peace with God, with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ in him because of his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his triumphant resurrection in him. Our souls are unshackled, our sin record erased. Every last trace of guilt is removed as far as the east is from the west, and we are brought back again, reconciled to our maker, where before we were foes. Now, we're family. We are called children of God. No Nobel Peace Prize recipient can claim anything close to that. And one day, our Prince of Peace will return, as promised, right on schedule, and at His second coming, He will subdue all opposition. He will judge all evil, and ultimately, our Prince of Peace will reign on the earth. What a standout king. King Jesus is. The incomparable God-man is fully and forever qualified as a wonderful counselor, as mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. With such excellencies, what difference will he make? What difference will he make? Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. History hasn't seen anything like this. Not ever. It's hard to conceive of something like this. All we see are economies that expand and contract, markets that boom and bust, despots that steamroll other nations and then come to nothing. With Jesus as king, we will experience unstoppable, ever-expanding prosperity and peace, undiminished harmony and wholeness. Think of it. Death will be done. Satan will be slain. We will finally be fit for heaven. Think of it. Perfect peace in our hearts, in our homes, on the earth. Jesus will rule in fulfillment of God's long-standing covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. He will be the kind of king who loves what is right, who hates what is wrong, and every historic injustice, whether individual, whether personal, or systemic, will finally be set right. He alone has the capacity to do that. Righteousness will be the scepter of his kingdom, and he will accomplish it perfectly in practice 
end in principle. If you've ever suffered a false accusation, have you? Have you ever been scammed for a bundle? You ever been fined unfairly? If you've ever committed a crime but then run to Jesus for his redemption, for all of us, this is our hope. And this hope will never fizzle out. It's sure. It's certain. Why? Because look at God's word there. This will be from this time forth, and you say it, forevermore. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? But we've got a king with the qualities who can make it so. So think about that quiet afternoon when Gabriel, the angelic courier, knocked on Mary's door to deliver that extraordinary birth announcement of this king's first coming. That godly girl who had never known a man who had no categories for what this angel was saying, simply said, how will this be? I'm in. How will this happen? God answers that in the last phrase of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God underscores his promise with a guarantee. Do you see it? So the words describing God there, Lord of hosts, describes the God who created and commands armies. He created and commands angel armies. He has these supernaturally powerful warriors at his call, right and ready to obey His will. They would be a, a powerful way to pull off such a promise. But that's not the basis of God's guarantee here. Something else about God guarantees that He'll do this. Do you see it? The zeal. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God doesn't need legions of angels. His zeal, His ardent love, His fiery passion to unfold His unstoppable purpose for the people that He loves is enough. It's more than enough to pull this off. God so loved the world is why He sent His Son into the world for the first time. His unstoppable love, His protective covenant commitment for you and for me is enough to pull this off and to pull it off forever. He will bring this to completion. God personally guarantees this king to come. Do you see how sure your hope is? However gloomy, whatever cloud might come over you this Christmas, do you see how sure your hope is? One commentator drives this home way better than I could. He writes, when our days grow dark or distressing, we have to decide what reading of our experiences to live by. The darknesses, the darkness and the distress are real. 
But they are not the only reality, nor the fundamental reality. In any given situation, we can either sink into despair or rise to faith and hope. Christian, however Christmas plays out for you, whatever your gloom or your joy, you and I can rest on this fundamental reality. We have an incomparable king, incomparably qualified, who came as promised and who is still to come, guaranteed by God's, God's unstoppable, ardent love for you. To you, this child is born. To you, this son is given. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, even as we try to wrap our minds around your words that are telling us of something indescribable, the indescribable gift of your Son, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who drives it home, who will help us when it gets dark this Christmas. Lord, we remember that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what you've prepared for those who love you. And so would you use these verses, this promise of yours, Lord, to dispel the dark, to drive doubt away, and to heighten our joy. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus our conquering King, to come. For it's His fame that we're looking for. Amen.